Hello and welcome to episode 33 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics with your hosts Peter Legge and Peter Lim. In this episode, we close this series on African diasporas with a look at Africans in Britain. Our special guest is Marika Sherwood, a senior research fellow at the Institute of Commonwealth Studies in London, a founder member of the Black and Asian Studies Association. Her many books include Abolition, Britain and the Slave Trade, since 1807, published in 2007, a biography of West Indian civil rights worker and feminist Claudia Jones uh, in 1999, Kwame Nkrumah, The Years Abroad, published in Ghana in 1996, a book on Pastor Ekate and the African Church's mission in Liverpool, and two books on the famous 1945 Pan-African Congress in Manchester, one of them co-edited with Hakim Hadi for New Beacon Books in 1995. And with him, she also co-authored in 2003 Pan-African History, Political Figures from Africa and the Diaspora since 1787. Welcome, Marika Sherwood. Thank you very much. It is an honor to have been asked to contribute to this, truly. <laughs> to have a Hungarian woman speaking on such a topic is quite something. <laughs> well, it's, well, can you tell us about how you got interested in the history of the African diaspora in Britain? Well, I have to take you back a, a long way. I came to... England, um, in 1968, we had been refugees um, from Hungary, so we went, what was left of my family went to Australia in 1948, and I didn't like Australia, so I came here, and I was a divorced woman with no support from ex-husband and a child, and I had no relatives here. So I certainly know what it's like to be an, an immigrant, even if I was a white immigrant. So I thought that the best thing I could do was teach in school so that I could, wouldn't have problems about how to look after Craig during holidays. Right. So I go into schools, and of course this is 68, so we have a lot of black kids here. And I mean, it, it was such a shock to me, not the black kids, but how they were treated. Um, in the first school, I was asked to teach them English. Well, they spoke as good English as I spoke. You know, we all spoke with colonial accents of different <laughs> kinds. But what what really pushed me into this was an experience in a secondary school. Um, I think it, it was the celebration of the end of World War II or something like that. And... Um, a fight developed in the playground, which began with the white kids saying to the black kids, well, my father or grandfather or whoever, you know, we did such and such, you dot did nothing. And this sort of went on, and it developed into a fist fight. Now, by then, I had talked to enough Caribbean parents to know that, in fact, the Caribbean had very much contributed to World War II. I didn't know any more than that, but I knew that much. So I thought, well, if I can ever somehow get it together to, to do some research, I want to do that because I want to put information into the hands of children. I don't want them to have to use their fists. 
I want them to know more than the white kids know. So that's how I got started. <laughs> or that's what impelled me. So down the road when my son decided he wasn't going to go to university, I began working part-time so I could do research. It's as basic as that. Perhaps we could turn to some of this early black history in the UK. In your recent book, very interesting new book, called After Abolition, Britain and the Slave Trade Since 1807. You focus in one chapter on a tale of two cities built on slavery. And then yes, you also yes. draw attention to how few, relatively few historians have bothered to research Britain's continuing involvement in the slave trade after abolition in 1807. I know these, these weren't the first uh, Africans in, in, in Britain. There's interesting stories uh, going back even earlier. There's Equiano, and in one of your articles that I was reading, you were talking about Africans that came to Britain under the Romans, but maybe we could talk about some of these slave trade issues. Well, what do you want me to say about them? I mean, well, the, particularly the, these two, the two cities uh, <clears throat> that you, you, you've researched. What what can we uh, say in retrospect about these two these two cities built on slavery? Well, I think I want to begin by having a go at at British historians because while in any history of Liverpool they have to say something about Liverpool growing from a tiny port to a very large port because of the trade in enslaved Africans. But there is absolutely no research um, on all the other cities that depended on slave-grown materials. Now, the, the prize city, if you like, is Manchester because that also grew from next to nothing um, to being the center of, of the cotton industry because it was very close to Liverpool, so they could build a canal so that raw cotton could be shipped down to Manchester and finished cotton could be shipped up to Liverpool. And in fact, the whole of Lancashire, that's the county in which Manchester sits, then became almost completely dependent on cotton. Now, some people will say, oh, <laughs> and I, I would argue, look, you were dependent on cotton um, even if you were coal mining, because the coal was being used by all the many people who were going to Manchester <laughs> to work in the factories <laughs> producing the cotton. What about the people who, who built the ships, um, who created the metals with which the ships were built, with which the machinery was built? What about the people who built the housing for the, these incoming laborers in the factories? And by the way, the conditions were absolutely appalling. You know, the British have nothing to be proud about at all. Um, but, you know, one can take this much further. Look at all the tobacco that came in. Who processed that tobacco? Who then shipped it out? Because like cotton, a lot of it was sold abroad. What about the sugar that came in? Who did the processing of that? Um, and so on. You know. So I think Eric Williams was right. I don't think he looked broadly enough, but I think he was perfectly right that, that Britain grew because of the trade enslaved Africans and Indeed, what yes. enslaved Africans produced. Indeed, in this uh, 
was also picked up by Joseph Inikori in his uh, recent book, Africans yeah. and the Industrial Revolution in England. So it's uh, yeah. obviously it's a very important issue. And there are other cities like Bristol. You mentioned that other cities have been neglected. Well, yeah, what if just just staying on uh, on the city of Manchester uh, for a minute? This has become an important uh, city uh, in Black history in other ways. Yeah. Of course, it was the uh, the site of the famous Pan-African Conference in 1945, and you yeah. have written um, uh, several works about this. Perhaps you could just speak to the significance of the Pan-African Conferences uh, in general and the, and the Manchester Pan-African Conference of 1945 in particular. Well, let me start with the Conference of 1900. Um, because I'm just finishing the the book on Henry Sylvester Williams, who right. who organised that, and he travelled around England. He was here as a law student, um, publicising um, the African Association, which they had set up in London. And one of the places he went to twice was Manchester. Um, now. You know, my next question would be, who did he speak to, who attended his meetings? I haven't got an answer to that because there's no research on the black population of Manchester, historically speaking, at all, which is absolutely ridiculous. Um, you know, if for no other reason than because a lot of the seamen on those vessels carrying goods backwards and forwards were of African and Caribbean origins. Anyway, that's the 1900 conference, and it was the first Pan-African conference. And what drew a lot of people together, there were Africans and Caribbeans and African-Americans who attended that, um, was that they all felt that their governments were completely exploiting them. So they were talking of... of um, the lack of government supervision of what the private companies were doing, the government regulations themselves, you know, who could own land, Africans couldn't own land, and so on, and racial discrimination. Um, and it's very interesting that in many ways those same issues were there 45 years later when yet another Trinidadian, <laughs> George Padmore, um, organizes the 1945 conference. Um, again, attended by a broad spectrum of, of people. But, of course, the other issue then was independence. Um, and what what form would independence take? Would you be part of the Commonwealth? Um, you know, and racial discrimination was raised again. Um, and it's... You know, in, in many ways, when I look at that now, I think it was, in some ways, easy to draw people together because how your experiences under colonial rule and under the systems of racial discrimination within the northern USA and in Britain you had a lot in common in terms of experience, not just skin color, in terms of your experience. And, and you could ignore other aspects of your lives and, and if you like, your differences, because in many ways the, 
or in some aspects, there's not that much in common between the experiences in the USA and here. And I mean, look at the variety of experiences in the USA between the South and the North and, and California, if you like. Um, yes, that I'm also talking. raises this interesting comparative question about Pan-Africanism. And uh, yeah. sometimes there's an overemphasis on on the American uh, connections, but you're bringing out points, uh, particularly with regard to the Pan-African conferences, but also of communities, black communities in Europe. And of course, it wasn't just limited to uh, to Britain. Uh, on the continent, there were African communities um, for many centuries. So uh, what's interesting, I suppose, from my point of view, with the Pan-African conference in Manchester in 45 is it has involvement not just from um, uh, from the British colonies and uh, from South Africa and the US with W.B. Du Bois and others but but also from Francophone Africa and so there are these interesting cross currents um, in of the of the black diaspora in Europe and uh, how, how do you see um, these these different foci interacting with each other? Um, was there a, uh, a tension? Was there a cooperation, do you think, between different Pan-Africanist organizations uh, and structures and individuals? I mean, you have spoken about Kwame Nkrumah's years abroad. And, of course, yeah. he was educated in the U.S., but, of course, he was... And Ghanaians and the West African Student Union were an important force in, yeah. in in Europe. Yes. Well, there wasn't, as far as we know at the moment, there wasn't much interaction between the activists in France um, and and in Britain. And I know of no research about any activists in Holland, for example, which also had colonies. Um, mm-hmm. So there, there's very little research. What I can tell you is that I have just discovered that Kwame Nkrumah, after the the 45 Pan-African Conference, went over to Paris to speak to Apiti and I don't know who else. And that when he went back to the Gold Coast, um, he tried to cross over to the Ivory Coast, presumably to, to set up you know, to meet other activists, and he was turned back. Um, whether he ever actually got through, I don't yet know. But he certainly, um, as we know, was a very strong Pan-Africanist. Um, and, you know, we would, well, it's, it's very difficult to, to find out um, just what went on, because I have no other research to draw on, but I have colleagues um, who are trying to look in the French newspaper, French left-wing newspapers for me, who might have reported um, Nkrumah's presence. He was certainly there, I think, in 46, maybe twice, maybe also in early 47. Um, but other collaborations I don't know, but what I think is important that many of the people who were at the 45 conference then sort of took Pan-Africanism home with them, or or some segment of of that kind of idea. Um, But not any of them were quite as active as 
Kwame Nkrumah. Mm. And, and to what extent uh, do you think the Pan-Africanists at the end of World War II were also interacting with other anti-colonial uh, movements, uh, for example, in Asia? Again, there, as far as I know, there's, there's very little research. I can certainly tell you that um, Henry Sylvester Williams for the 1900 conference received support from Indians and also from Irish nationalists. Remember, right. this, um, un the United Kingdom was uh, becoming very disunited. <laughs> yes. And... <laughs> um, and if I recall correctly, there were some messages from Indians to the 45 Congress. Um, and I have certainly wondered, and maybe somehow I'll get to India, C.L.R. James lived down the road from Krishna Menon. You know who Krishna Menon was? Yes. Okay, well, for people who don't know, he, um, he, he fought for Indian independence and lived here in England for many years. Um, now, I simply cannot imagine that there would have been no meetings between C.L.R. James and Krishnamurti. <laughs> it seems impossible, but all, I, all I've got so far is, is posters for a couple of um, um, open discussions um, where Krishnamurti's name is m mentioned together with um, Caribbean and um, Africans resident here as, as contributing. But, you know, again, it needs to be researched. And in researching this uh, and putting, piecing together this hidden history, uh, biography must be an important building block. And you've written elsewhere about Claudia Jones and uh, yeah. a, a, a person I didn't know much about, Pastor Ricarte in Liverpool. Mm -hmm. Maybe yeah. you could tell us a little bit about these two interesting uh, people. Well, I mean, very, very different people. And um, I mean, the, the story of how I came to research Pastor Daniel Zakarte will tell you a lot about um, the total disinterest in this country and how there's no funding, no anything. I never get any funding for the work I do. Um, I was in Liverpool because I had been asked to sit on the committee of the very first slave trade exhibition in the National Museum there. Um, so I go wandering around, you know, I knew that black people had lived in the Toxteth area, so I go there and talk to people on the street, and eventually one of them says to me, um, Ah, you'd be interested in in uh, in uh, Pastor Rakarte, so I, you know, and that's how it started. Daniel Rakarte um, came over here from what is today Nigeria because he thought he was coming to the land of milk and honey, you know, the wonderful mother country, and what he found here was not exactly that. Um, he stayed in Liverpool, where he got off his ship from Nigeria. Um, and with some help from the Scottish churches set up uh, a social centre because, for example, he realised that kids and he, he was not a focus... Well, he focused his work on the black population there, but he realised that a lot of the whites were equally poor. So you could go to have breakfast there before you went to school, whether you were a black kid or a white kid. But he set up then all kinds of organizations for black kids and, and black mothers and 
and fought the um, local shipping companies about the completely discriminatory wages being played, paid to black seamen, for example, and and then got to know people outside of Liverpool and, and participated in, in more national, the little national activism that went on. But, you know, the, the tragedy of this country's historians is that, you know, I do that research and I get it into print, and since then, one black Liverpool person has written something on, on the history of black people in Liverpool, and that's it. That's it. You know, and, and there were hundreds of black seamen um, who were settled in Liverpool, um, and seamen from India, and seamen from China as well. And, and this country just does not want to look at that history at all. So that is Daniel Sakarte, um, who really didn't have any any um, any ecclesiastical training. Let me put it that way. But he was called Pastor Sakarte, and he did run a church. He did run a church, which which a lot of the Liverpool black people attended. Now the other person who is unknown um, is Claudia Jones. Um, another fabulous person from Trinidad. There's something about Trinidadians um, which has intrigued me for a long time. Um, parents went to live in the USA um, when the Depression struck Trinidad, so there was no work there. She was eventually taken up there with her siblings. Um, they lived in great poverty. Her mother died, clearly from overwork and the lack of medical attention. So Claudia couldn't stay in school that long, but she was clearly incredibly bright because on joining the Communist Party, she ended up as the editor of their paper for young people. So, you know, lack of education, but not uh. a lack of skill. Uh. <laughs> um, and became um, somebody who spent a lot of her time speaking around the country and writing on women's issues and racial issues. Um, she was, I was told by a now retired member of the Communist Party that she was such a fabulous speaker that at one time when she was speaking in Madison Square Gardens, which holds 14,000 people, I was told you could hear a pin drop. People were in such silence listening to her. Um, anyway, um, during the McCarthy anti-communist era, she's arrested and put in jail. Um, and they want to deport her because she had never acquired American citizenship. So the Trinidad governor has absolute horrors at the thought of this incredibly powerful woman going to Trinidad. <laughs> so the Brit Britain has to accept her, so she's brought here. And I say brought because um, Claudia herself was very ill all her life. She got tuberculosis as a child um, and in, in the USA. She did get some treatment, but it wasn't enough. So she suffered from TB all her life and was in and out of hospital all her life. Uh, but she comes over here 
there's a big send-off in, in the U.S., including Paul Robeson and all the Communist um, Party, especially the black senior figures in the Communist Party. Um, she arrives here, and our Communist Party doesn't know what to do with a black woman um, and is really pretty racist. So Claudia gets no support from them and realizes that there's a lot of problems here and she'd better get on and organize, which she does. So here is this woman who knows nobody here, who is ill on and off all the time, I mean hospitalized all the time, who manages to set up a newspaper. And she begins to publish this newspaper and to have it sold around the country. Um, which in a way follows in the footsteps of George Padmore's newspaper in the sense that what they want to do is send information around about other people's struggles so that you know you're not alone. So that you Solidarity. Know, yes. Because when people live in isolation as, as they did, you don't know that other people face the same issues and what they are doing about them. So I think by, by spelling it out, you don't just build solidarity, you put tools in people's hands mm. and you give them strength. So she did that. And she did other amazing things. I was told by one woman I interviewed, um, and she was crying and I ended up crying too, said they were talking about the role of women. And the person I'm interviewing says, you know, and I said to Claudia, well, you know, we can't be beautiful, we're not beautiful, black women can't be beautiful, it's only blondes who are beautiful. And Claudia looked at me, my interview is telling me, and said, I will show you that black women are beautiful. And Claudia organizes beauty contests. Now, all right, it's not what we would do today, but, you know, this is the early 60s and invites the model agencies and the newspapers and so on. And suddenly, black women can be beautiful. They are hired as models. You know, and that is a fantastic achievement in those days. Yes. Um, and she also wanted to demonstrate that there was a culture in the Caribbean, because the British perception is of, oh, you know, they're savages. Um, and... That is so bad that when I was um, running a course for teachers, again in the, this would have been early 70s, they really asked me whether they still live in trees. That's how bad it is. So Claudia decides to demonstrate um, culture by organizing a British version of Trinidad Carnival to demonstrate music and, and invention. Um, in in terms of, of the clothing. Um, and that has now become the greatest carnival in Europe. Um, so she was, she ran her office um, for the West Indian Gazette. Her newspaper became not only an advice center for everybody, but everybody called there. You know, the new heads of Caribbean governments called there. Everybody had heard of Claudia or wanted to meet Claudia or wanted Claudia to do something, something for them. It's only now that she is beginning to be recognized.
Well, if I could uh, step in with one final question, because that's pretty much all the time we have for today. Uh, this work that you've done on, on the hidden history of Africans and people of African origin in uh, Britain uh, has led to quite a lot of outreach and advocacy uh, with the founding of the Black and Asian Studies Association in 1991. And you've also worked quite a bit in, and written and presented papers on uh, Africans in, in uh, British curricula. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that to, to, to bring this uh, fascinating conversation to a close? <laughs> well, to, to a very political close, um, one reason we founded the Black and Asian Studies Association was because um, the then government had developed a national curriculum for all our schools, right? So all schools had a national curriculum they had to follow. There's absolutely nothing in that curriculum, in the history curriculum, about um, black peoples in Britain. Um, when I began to do research on, on what was actually in the curriculum, that there was a section on Egypt, I then went to look at the books that had been published on Egypt. And would you believe it? All Egyptians look like me. You know, they, they, they didn't... <laughs> they, they weren't in Africa. And right. the maps in the books didn't put Egypt into Africa. They just had the Mediterranean Sea to the north and the Red Sea to the east, but there were no maps of Africa. Um, so it was like that. Um, and there was nothing else but the fact that we had, a, um, at the time of the Roman conquest, um, that one of the Roman emperors who was over here was an African and that he died here and was buried here. That wasn't there. The African troops who came with the Romans weren't there. Um, the Africans here during um, Tudor times weren't there, and still aren't, and still aren't. So that struggle has to go on. And I now argue that we have to look at the whole curriculum, not just history, and put Europe in its place. We are part of the world, and England is a little part of, of Europe. And people from everywhere discovered and invented and painted and composed and, 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 and we have to recognize that. And one reason to do that is because of this entrenched racism in this country. And I argue that the current curriculum increases the notions of white superiority and confirms notions of black inferiority because they simply don't exist, right? So they never did anything. Um, so I talk a lot about racism by commission and by omission <laughs> in, in the national curriculum. And it's, it's quite a struggle, you know, because people don't want to know. Yes, it's a very sobering point and perhaps an action-oriented point on which we could Indeed. bring this discussion to an end. Thank you very much, uh, Marika, for talking with us today. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. I hope people um, will learn something about this wonderful mother country to so many people of African origin. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Africa Past and Present is produced by Matrix. 
the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences Online at Michigan State University. Our producer is Scott Pennington. Technical assistance is provided by Alicia Scheel and the Matrix staff. For more information about this and other episodes, and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D, dot A-O-D-L dot O-R-G. Africa Past and Present is also available on iTunes and other podcatcher sites. To get in touch with us, send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>